Welcome to Better Worlds Ocean, where we dive into discussions on cutting-edge technology, data-driven solutions, and groundbreaking innovations aimed at tackling oceanic challenges. Join us as we ride the quest of a new era in global sustainability and work together to preserve our oceans for generations to come. Hello and welcome back to Better Worlds Ocean podcast series. I'm Kate Wing with Intertidal Agency, your host, and I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Brian Von Herzen, who's joining us today all the way from Queensland, Australia. I'm out in California, so it's a good stretch of time zones and latitudes. Dr. Brian Von Herzen is with the Climate Foundation and is an innovator in the field of marine permaculture. Brian, thank you for joining us today and welcome. Greetings, Kate. It's great to see you. It's great to see you as well. We really appreciate you fitting us into what is a very busy schedule, innovating around the world of seaweed and marine permaculture. And I want to start with your early experiences with the ocean, because I understand you grew up in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, right on the coast of the Atlantic, an ocean away from where you are now. Yes, my father was an oceanographer, uh, and I was actually born in San Diego, uh, so perhaps not far from uh, where you are now. Um, at Scripps, uh, my father was getting his PhD uh, at Scripps, and um, while he was getting his, his, his office mate, uh, the, the year I was born, his office mate decided to start measuring carbon dioxide on the side of, uh, of Mauna Loa, and that was Dave Keeling. Um, so in a strange way, I was born into a um, community that was looking at uh, healthy climate and carbon in the oceans and in the atmosphere, uh, you know, way back decades ago. And uh, it turns out um, Dave Keeling's son, Ralph Keeling, is running the Keeling curve uh, data for the um, University of California in San Diego to this day. So I had a chance to meet him a few years ago. That was early on. Amazing. And, you know, uh, growing up on the beach or near the beach there, my, my father uh, put, took me out on a, a boogie board when I was about two years old and uh, taught me how to surf. Uh, later, you know, snorkeling, he, he was like a, a submarine, you know, he could go underwater free diving and I'd watch him and he, he'd be underwater for two minutes at a time. It's like, <laughs> how do you do that? You know, it's just amazing. So eventually I learned how to free dive and hold my breath and maybe stay down for one minute, not two minutes. And, uh, you know, it's great to, to do that. So love of free diving. And then, uh, and then we learned how to sail and race sailboats. And that taught me really over the years, a love for the sea. But also witnessing since the 1970s a decimation of the marine life uh, over recent decades. We used to go diving in Baja, and I would see continuous carpets of fish, millions of fish, to the point where you could not see the seafloor. And sometimes you couldn't even see the surface of the ocean because there are so many fish everywhere. And to go from that abundance to what's becoming increasingly mostly empty ocean. Uh, is a, a, a really significant development. Having witnessed that personally motivates me to work, do what we can to uh, regenerate life in the ocean. It's wonderful that you were able to visibly, visually, and emotionally connect to the ocean at, at such a young age. I think for a lot of people, maybe they swim in the ocean or they go visit the ocean at the beach, but to be able to have that window on the ocean that diving gives you, I think really allows you to be transported into this other world and to be able to watch it over time and, and have it be your life's work. It's a, it's a pretty amazing gift to be able to have and, and a place to be able to focus your efforts. 
And I like the fact that you can kind of put your birth date on the Keeling curve, the, in the famous graph of CO2 levels in the atmosphere. I, I hope you have that on your wall next to your birth certificate somewhere. Well, I do. You know, I was born at 315 parts per million of CO2, and today we're over 420, which is just testament to the fact of how imbalanced we are. I mean, we've got speed limits. They, you know, between 300 and 350, 350 parts per million. And uh, exceeding those means that we're putting our civilization at risk. I mean, fundamentally, uh, this is a bet your civilization proposition. So uh, I'm really concerned that, I mean, uh, we do have the technology to do it, but we need to build the political will to uh, be the change that the planet needs on a planetary timescale, which is a very few short years. I'm glad you brought up carbon concentrations because you run an organization called the Climate Foundation. And I think for a lot of us who work in the ocean, depending on what policy sector you're in or space you're in, you feel like you're always raising your hand and saying, and the ocean, right? The ocean is part of the climate solution. It's part of the climate connection. It's part of what is keeping the ocean in balance with those rising CO2 levels. And so the work you're doing now around marine permaculture is directly addressing that issue of the ocean as buffer, as, as kind of keeping us in as good a position as we are right now, despite the rising climate crisis. Can you define marine permaculture and talk a little bit about why you decided that was the way you wanted to intervene? Yes. But I think first, I think it's worth um, emphasizing the point that you're making, and that is the ocean is the climate. When you look at the thermal energy in the biosphere, it's mostly ocean. When you look at the volume of the biosphere, it's mostly ocean. We came from the ocean. Life originated in the ocean. Uh, ocean is the climate. You know, when you're trying to figure out, all right, what's the next year or two going to be like? We look to the ocean. We look to El Nino. We look to La Nina. Um, it's that ENSO oscillation that's going to determine what our climate is going to be globally. And so in so many ways, um, we need to take care of nature so that nature can take care of us. And that is no civilization has survived a collapse of the seas and the soils. And um, so we, you know, it's a bet your civilization opportunity. And that's one reason uh, that we're so focused on how do we uh, regenerate primary production. We're starting in this tropical and subtropical ocean, but um, you know, the, this, this, this journey uh, started perhaps uh, two decades ago I was doing expeditions across Greenland, and we watched Greenland melting. I mean, they were reporting melt ponds. We found those melt ponds. The next year, they were melt lakes. The next year, they were like 100 kilometers long and 100 feet deep, and they were clear blue water swimming pools of water. And by 2012, 97% of the surface of Greenland had melted. And to me, that was just you know, a testament to the exponential transformation we're doing in these polar regions. And that motivated me to try to understand how we could adjust the problem. And it started with realizing for us to succeed and do this cost effectively and get back to a healthy climate, we are going to need to enlist life that for eons has been fixing carbon on seas and soils and doing so at the gigaton levels. And then secondly, uh, the oceans are where most of life lives. And so for us to uh, have a uh, even larger magnitude change without impacting land land use and land area and all the rest. 
we should be using the 100 million square kilometers between you and me right now, subtropical ocean that's mostly empty. And I, I learned uh, through some a sabbatical uh, at Woods Hole Oceanographic and our work over 10 years uh, with our climate house in Woods Hole um, to actually you know, have a deep understanding of the ocean the way it is today, what the disruptions are, both with the water being warmer, uh, that actually reduces the amount of natural upwelling and reduces a primary source of nutrients for kelp forests, for seaweed forests, and for microalgae. As a result, we're seeing losses of 30 to 40% in the tropics and subtropics relative to pre-industrial levels. And that's, that's cutting off the food source at both ends. If you're looking at sardines or tuna fish, they have to ultimately rely on microalgae um, for, for food, macroalgae for habitat sometimes. And we're fishing the tuna down on the top end by fishing all the big tuna, but we're depriving the food source on the, on the bottom end, and that's through global warming. So our challenge and our opportunity is to identify what I'm gonna call nutrient value chain gaps. And that is a loss of natural upwelling means less nitrate, less phosphate from the deep that can support primary production. And this starts in the tropics where uh, we're seeing uh, stratification of five to 20% over pre-industrial levels based on the recent research in nature climate change. The result means a lot less primary uh, material for, uh, for primary production. And that means we need to, what can we do to fill that, that nutrient value chain gap? That's where we uh, considered various forms, restoring natural upwelling. And that can either be done with renewable energy and actually pumping a lot of water, which is appropriate in a shallow reef area where uh, we might need to regenerate uh, a shallow reef flat uh, or even prevent corals from, from bleaching or reverse coral bleaching, which we've done some, some work in. Or alternatively, um, since most of the ocean is deep ocean, a deep cycling platform can actually uh, use the seaweed as a sponge, which can concentrate nutrients almost 10,000 to one. And during the daytime, the seaweed soaks up sunlight. And at sunset, we lower the platform and it absorbs nitrate and phosphate and nutrients below the, the thermocline. At sunrise, we bring the platform back up again and it soaks up sunlight and carbon in the top meter of the ocean. And so that's kind of, uh, it's in a sense, uh, biomimicry because there are a lot of organisms that uh, on a day-by-day -day basis migrate up and down through the water column. So it's that kind of inspiration. We look to nature for uh, inspiration to see how can we uh, fill those nutrient value chain gaps, ensure food security for humanity and for, and for the oceans. Yeah, it's been called the, the largest migration on the planet ever is this migration that happens within the water column in the ocean. And I think, again, getting back to this idea of when any of us humanoids has the opportunity to get into the ocean and appreciate that three-dimensionality of it, right? We, you know, we're used to this three-dimensional space we exist in, in air. And then when you get under the water and you see, oh, the corals and their structures and the way things move up and down in the water column, it makes you sometimes appreciate more just the complexity that is there, not just in what you can see, but what you can't see, which are these temperature gradients, these nutrient gradients. You know, the upwelling you're referring to 
it's really the circulatory system of the ocean, and then it gets compared to the way blood flows through your body, right? You need it to be oxygenated, to be healthy, and then you use the oxygen from it, and then your heart keeps it going so that you can recharge it, your lungs bring the oxygen in, and you need that system going. And in the ocean, the heart is, in some ways, the wind and the temperature gradient. So when you talk about things being stratified, Maybe somebody just thinks, well, yeah, I've seen, I've seen stratified jello. It was tasty, right? Like I saw something with layers. Layers happen in soil. But in the ocean, it's really a sign that the type of exchange of nutrients, of temperatures, of, of food and exposure isn't happening the way it used to be. It's a, it's a kind of sluggishness in the way that you wouldn't want in your own blood flow. And for those of us who study the ocean, we get concerned. So this idea that you're creating these systems that are, are mimicking the existing photosynthetic experience of many organisms in the ocean and just doing it on a, a, a bigger scale. I, we could do a whole separate podcast on the, the joy of algae, which maybe not everyone listening today wants to listen to, but I do want to ask you a little bit more about how you pick the seaweeds that you're picking. Do you pick something that's local? Do you pick something that's tasty? You know, how, I, I read in your work that you're trying to optimize for carbon sequestration as well as possibly food sources and industrial products, which are all things algae is used for now. How do you pick the right species? How do you, how do you know where to start? We pick uh, most, uh, mostly local species and species that, I mean, there are 14,000 uh, species of seaweed in the ocean, red, green, and brown thousands of each. And there's almost always a, a local species that is interesting, tasty, good for food, feed, and fertilizer, and really practical. Uh, and the platform, the marine permaculture platform that we're developing works with most species of seaweed. Really, uh, there's some just a few environmental conditions you need in order to foster regeneration of seaweed forest. Um, and, that, and that is a substrate for the seaweed to hold onto, uh, and that lets the current flow by. And the second is a, a um, you know a source of nutrients, and that could be from a river that's going by, uh, pouring into the ocean, or more more typically, uh, upwelling that occurs episodically and periodically off the coast of California, for example, and other places, including the Philippines and Indonesia. Um, seaweed is somewhat new to the Western world, but it's um, well established in in Asia, which is one reason that we're working in Australasia today. And there are a quarter million seaweed farmers on the front lines of climate disruption in the Philippines alone. And that's been a great first country for us because uh, literally we need to bring those seaweed communities from collapsing today because the water's too warm, the nutrient levels are too low, and they get hit with 20 named hurricanes per year. We, we, we are on a direct hit ourselves, Super Typhoon Ride, December 2021. And we, most seaweeds are just, most seaweed uh, cultivation is just wiped out in a hurricane, as you can imagine. But our platform, we lowered five meters below the surface, and not only did it survive 15-foot waves and 120-knot winds, but it remained intact, and most of the seaweed was still on it. And the day after the hurricane, we were growing seaweed again on the surface. And six months later, we delivered a quarter ton of seedlings of seaweed to our neighboring communities so they could restart their farms. So that was a great uh, effect, in fact, to the point where uh, with our partners at Coast for Sea, we applied to the Safe Seaweed Coalition to build a seaweed seed bank that we're building today, and it's going to lower down during a storm and then come back up after a storm and reseed all the neighboring communities. So that's now a funded project, thanks to our serendipitous uh, hurricane-proven seaweed platform. 
this is a beacon of light for the future because I've had professional seaweed colleagues leave the Philippines because it's just so, it was so difficult to deal with the hurricanes and getting wiped out every few years. It's like a bowling alley. And when your pin gets knocked over, you know, you're out of business. Uh, imagine starting over and losing your house and losing your boat. I mean, all these things are devastating. But, you know, there's something the indigenous folks do in, in the Philippines that I learned later. I, I wish I'd known it earlier. But when a hurricane's coming, they take the motor off their boat, they scuttle their boat and sink it with a little milk bottle up on the surface. The hurricane comes through and, and you know, it's all over. And then they just lift the boat up and bail it out and put the motor on it again. And that works great. And that's exactly the, the answer for seaweed. So there's a great example of indigenous knowledge contributing significantly to best practices. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I like the way you brought in not just learning from the communities, but learning how to engage communities, because you know, that's one thing that is interesting about your project is that it that while the technology is sophisticated and it has taken you a long time, and I'm sure a lot of lost seaweed farms and, and dead seaweed to figure out how to get it to the stage you're at now, um, it seems like you're developing something that a lot of communities could put in place and they could use to be part of carbon sequestration or blue carbon credits or some other project. Is that is that what you're designing for? Is kind of anyone could set up a marine permaculture system like the one you have? Yes, the intent is to um, uh, design it once and, and build it thousands of times for thousands of coastal communities. And uh, specifically, we... Um, our aim is, is to build hectare scale marine permaculture. Every seaweed farmer has a license to uh, cultivate one hectare of seaweed locally. And that uh, is a great size because that's also the size that uh, we believe is gonna be commercially sustainable. Today, we've launched uh, a 10th of a hectare, which is a quarter acre uh, uh, platform that was back in December. We're presently commissioning that platform. And in the coming months, we'll be growing seaweed on that platform as a stepping stone to the economically sustainable hectare. So we see a great opportunity to demonstrate the business model economics, show that it works, and really transform these seaweed communities from collapsing to surviving. And ultimately, uh, we have a, a, a transportable biorefinery that can take raw seaweed in and produce food, feed, and fertilizer products out. And those can be delivered to local rice farmers and uh, local communities. And can actually provide great ingredients with much more value retained within the community, within the seaweed community. And for us, that's what brings these communities from surviving to thriving, and that is localized production. So we see those value chain inter, um, innovations as really being key to building what I'll call uh, distributed wealth creation. And that is we need to, we need to uh, enable food security for more than a billion people who depend on the oceans for their primary sustenance. The, the sardine farmers, the sardine fishermen, uh, come out to our platform day and night because the sardines love to hang out. You know, any habitat is really attractive for sardines. And uh, we believe that we're going to be able to develop evidence um, through isotope studies and other approaches to show that the seaweed, that the fish are not only attracted to the platform, but they're growing on the platform. We have seen thousands of sardines, hundreds of tuna. We had a family of dolphins spend more than a month around our deep sea platform. And we've had a whale shark swim an estimated 200 kilometers and spend three days eating our algae. So nature has voted with her fins and she said, you've got the good stuff. 
And, uh, you know, I can't think of a better validation than that kind of natural validation. Well, it's a great validation, but this is a space that a lot of people are trying to jump into right now, carbon credits and, and blue carbon. What are your thoughts on national and international standards for certifying a high quality product? How, how can you, how can we be sure that we're really investing in things that are going to have these kinds of lasting benefits, not just for carbon sequestration, but also for the kind of community benefits you talked about? Well, that's a great question. I think it begins with food security, and that's because we're living in a disrupted world. We've already seen major threats to, and, and, and starvation occurring in the world because of disruptions, whether they're climate disruptions or political disruptions. And uh, the global supply chains are being threatened, which means that we're gonna have to rely on food security for 8 billion people to begin with. If we get to zero carbon, but we're on a dead planet, will we really have succeeded? And I think our challenge and our opportunity is to ensure food security, not only for humanity, but for the 8 million species who can't vote. Because after all, we're on Spaceship Earth. And if we don't preserve most of the biodiversity and most of the species that we were born onto this planet with, what will be our legacy? I mean, it, it's, we're stewards of this earth. We're all on Spaceship Earth together. And our challenge and our opportunity is to ensure that most, if not all of those species can survive and coexist. And uh, that's why I think it's so important for us to move beyond the minor differences we have uh, maybe between peoples and spend that trillion dollars on regenerating a healthy climate in our lifetimes. That's a great message for us to go out on. And I, I just have one last question for you as someone who has come at these ideas and issues from so many different angles throughout your career, from technology, from software, from biology, from community-based design. What advice do you have for someone who's looking to get in on ocean conservation, on climate action through the ocean? Where are the opportunities in tech and in investments? And you know, what looking at your supply chain and how you want to scale, where do you want to see more people active? Well, for young people, I think it's so important to learn the STEM skills, the science, the technology, the mathematics um, that forms the foundation of really understanding how do we work with nature to regenerate uh, life on the planet and, um, and regenerate healthy climate? So it begins with STEM. Uh, more and more young people are interested in environmental work. And I think hectare by hectare, we need to build projects around the world. And that's going to be a great opportunity for coastal communities to get engaged uh, with volunteering, with um, designing a community system. Uh, it, it involves some capital raising and fundamentally, I think we need to invest in the future and it starts with food security on land and in the sea. We're producing some products, um, including, you may have heard of some of the seaweed uh, foliar biostimulants that actually help horticulture and gardens. Well, it actually helps row crops too. And it turns out you can get higher yields with 20% less fertilizer. And imagine, you know, for, that's, that's a huge amount for, for a country like India growing a, a rice for a billion people. That's actually, rice for another 200 million people. It's enormous. So in this age of, uh, you know, uh, Rockstrom's uh, planetary boundaries, we've got too much nitrate, we have too much phosphate and not enough biodiversity. Th these kind of nature-based um, interventions can help us to transform humanity's relationship uh, with the ocean and the, and the soils 
from extraction to regeneration. I uh, was told by my uh, friend Tom Chi that there is many, uh, there's as much ant biomass on the planet as there is humans. And I think if you include termites and some other arthropods, he's right. They actually eat 10 times uh, the, the amount per day that, that humans do, but they manage to do it in a way that's regenerative. Can we learn something from the ants and the insects of the world and actually find a way to turn our, our aircraft carrier of food production five degrees to the right and actually uh, learn how to um, generate food security uh, regeneratively rather than extractively. And I think that's an opportunity in the oceans as well. We've collapsed dozens of fisheries and uh, if we can regenerate the habitat, regenerate the food sources, we can bring back the sardines, the anchovies, the herring, and that'll be a great foundation for food security across the planet. Well, I think having the seal of approval from a whale shark, which is an example of something that can be enormous by filter feeding on microscopic organisms, is a great sign for all of us to think about how we can grow big while taking small changes and scaling up from local to global impact, like a whale shark. Thank you all for joining us today for our latest Better Worlds Ocean podcast. We'll see you at the next one. Thank you, Kate.